So good morning, listeners, and welcome to Come and See Inspirations, a, a podcast from Come and See Inspirations um, here in Ada County, Limerick. My name is John Keeley. Thank you indeed for joining me this morning. And also uh, my colleague Shane Ambrose, uh, who presents the programme with me in terms of Saints for the Week, Reflections and so on and so forth. Uh, thanks, Shane, for joining me. Good morning to you. Good morning, John. How are we keeping? Yeah, good. I suppose it'd be a good idea to mention that this is, it's the third Sunday in Ordinary Time. Uh, Shane, I know he's got a few things that he might just uh, just alert us to uh, when he goes through the saints in regard to what this uh, date and actually what this week is um, is about in terms of the Catholic Church. But just to, again, welcome our listeners who are joining us from various parts of the world. Uh, thank you indeed for joining us. Um, our podcasts, of course, are available online for those who wish at comeandseeinspirations.buzzspread.com. You can also get us on Facebook. Uh, on our Come and See Inspirations Facebook page. We're also available to be heard on Spotify, iTunes, and of course on our previous uh, blog that we have for many years, Sacred Space 102.blogspot.com contains all of our podcasts that we got actually going back, right the way back to 2008, 2009. If you want to contact us, please do so on 087 That's 87 6088667 or come and see inspirations at gmail.com. Now, at this part of the program, I'd like to hand over to Shane again to let us know what's happening in terms of saints for the week and maybe what's happening, what's the importance about today in, in the Catholic Church. Thanks, John, for that. So uh, we'll go through our liturgical odds and ends uh, for this week. So the first thing uh, just to say is today, as John said, is the third Sunday in Ordinary Time. Uh, so for those of us praying the Psalter, we'll be on week three. Uh, but the third Sunday in ordinary time on the Universal Church calendar is also the Sunday of the Word of God, which was set up by Pope Francis. Now, we're actually going to talk about that on next week's podcast. Now, I know we'll be, a bit, we'll, we'll, be a week late, we'll be a week late even, uh, but there's a reason for that. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, in the Irish situation, on the Irish church, it's also Catholic Schools Week. So it's the week where they kind of promote and encourage the ethos of Catholic schools now. Now, obviously, that is a very pertinent and lively debate issue at the moment. For our international listeners, they, they due to historical factors of many shape, form, and description, uh, up to something like 85 to 90% of primary and national schools in Ireland are actually under the patronage of the Catholic Church. It's quite a source of conversation. It's a source of aggravation for some people. Uh, but that's, that's just what it is at the moment. There is a whole political discussion going on around it. But anyway, this week is Catholic Schools Week in Ireland. We are also in the middle of the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity, which runs the 18th to the 25th of January. And in part two of this week's podcast, we are going to talk to Martin Brown from Glenstall Abbey, about what is the Week of Prayer of Christianity, why it is important to Christians, and a little bit of the history and story behind this year's uh, theme and resources, which have been, been prepared by the churches in the Middle East. Now, in terms of the normal uh, liturgical odds and ends that we do this week, so looking at the saints that we have on the calendar this week, John. So Monday is the 24th. It is the feast day of St. Francis de Sales. 1622, the man died. He was the Bishop of Geneva, founder of the Visitation Sisters. Um, he worked very much in terms of building uh, the Catholic faith, or rebuilding the Catholic faith in Switzerland after the Reformation. 
He's the patron saint of writers, editors, and journalists. And he, to this day, uh, his writings are still in print because he is a doctor of the church. So you can actually go into Catholic bookshops and you will find books of his writings on the Christian life. Um, so something just to think about, St. Francis de Sales, he died in 1622. The 25th of January is the feast day of the conversion of St. Paul. So this is very much, of course, the road to Damascus. That's that whole story, that whole event, which, of course, gave us the great evangelist, the great apostle of the faith, St. Paul. So that event is marked on the 25th of January every year. It's a particular day in Rome because uh, it's the end of the week of prayer for Christianity. And the closing vespers for the feast day are celebrated in the Basilica of St. Paul's outside the walls, where the remains of the saint are kept. And it is an ecumenical vespers. So the Pope will be joined by representatives of the uh, Anglican community, uh, the Orthodox community, and other representatives of, of Christian denominations for vespers in St. Paul's Inside the Wall. The Basilica of St. Paul's Inside the Wall, it's one of those basilicas which can be overlooked by visitors to Rome. It's actually very easy to get to. There is actually a metro station very close to it. It's a nice building to visit. It's a historic building to visit. It's a lovely place to go on pilgrimage to greet St. Paul because the generally the archaeology says he is probably buried there, like St. Peter is buried in St. Peter's Basilica. And also from a point of view of visiting, it's slightly outside the city and it's never that full of visitors. So you don't have those huge Roman crowds to deal with if we ever again get back in the air and travel to visit these far places. But anyway, it's what I want to think about the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls. The 26th of January is the feast day of St. Timothy and Titus. They always follow the feast of St. Paul because... Timothy and Titus were co-workers with Paul. They are people we come across in his letters and the Acts of the Apostles. Um, very much so, Timothy is generally seen to be the first bishop of Ephesus, um, which is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, sorry, Syria. And Paul's uh, advice to him, to Timothy that was, was to take, uh, take some wine for his stomach, to settle his stomach. So for that reason, St. Timothy is often invoked as the patron saint of stomach complaints. Titus was sent to organize the church in Crete and is very much associated with the Christian community in that particular country. The 27th of January is the feast day of St. Angela Marisi. She died in 1540, even, I beg your pardon. And she is the founder of the Ursuline. So obviously very much associated with education and particularly the education of girls. As far as I'm aware, there was or there is an Ursuline school in Perlis. Um, so that might be the closest one to us uh, where we are at the moment. Uh, so that's St. Angela Marisi. And she died in 1540. On the 28th of January, we have a great, we have a big one. It's a big feast day. It is the feast day of St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, Aquinas is a heavy hitter in terms of theology. He is a doctor of the church and his form of theology and his understanding of theology right down to the present day uh, is a, is a, is, is a way, one way of doing theology. It's Thomistic, the, Thomistic theology. And it's, how, it's his approach. He's Italian. He was born in Italy in 1224, died in 1274. He was um, a man that tried to do a synthesis of religious faith and belief with human knowledge. And um, in terms of trying to define and find our way to the true, the good, and the beautiful, which was God. Um, one of the greatest theologians of the church uh, still uh, held up to this day. He was a Dominican, 
Um, he was a, he's a patron of schools, universities, students, and booksellers. Interestingly enough, the man was supposed to be big. He was an ox. He, he's, 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 his nickname was an ox. Um, he was a big, heavy man. He, you know, he wasn't afraid of his food. We'll put it that way. Even that's come down to us to the present age. Okay. Uh, but even right up to the end, uh, Thomas, uh, despite being one of the greatest theologians the church ever had, he always turned around. He started his theology from his needs, from prayer. And even in the end, he said, theology, theological thinking often is just straw, um, you know, trying to penetrate the impenetrable, which is to understand the mystery of God. Um, so it's an interesting one. That's Thomas Aquinas, whose feast day we celebrate on the 28th of February. Then finally, for this week, in terms of liturgical odds and ends, we are celebrating the feast day of St. Gildas or St. Giles the Wise. He's an English saint, uh, died in 570 in Brittany in modern France. He was saint of various, a friend of various saints, including Samson of York and Peter Aurelian. He was a teacher of St. Finian of Clannard, so that's the Irish connection. He was also as a teacher of St. Kenneth of Wales. Uh, he was a monk. He came to Ireland. He uh, was an evangelist in Britain. He founded churches in Ireland and monasteries as well. And then after he went on pilgrimage to Rome, he went. He became a hermit on the tiny island of Rius, I think is how you pronounce it, uh, which he served, which followers followed him to. He became an, a monastery, which became the abbot of. He returned to England to preach in the north, and then his works were used by Bede the Venerable as well. So he's a uh, busy man. He's a busy man, uh, St. Giles, or Gildas the Wise, whose feast day we celebrate on the 29th of uh, 29th of January. Now, just to point out as well um, that in terms of bits and pieces that are going on, um, so next week, as I said, we are going to be doing Sunday of the Word of God. We'll cover that on the program. And then, John, I think the following week, we are going to do our Christian, our Catholic year in review. So this is for Shane tries to go back over the previous 12 months and to provide some kind of synopsis of things that happened in the Catholic world in the year 2024. Um, yeah, it's, it's a work in progress. Uh, hopefully it will work out. <laughs> There's a lot to be done. So uh, we'll be looking at what happened in 2021, but we'll also be looking forward to what's happening in 2022 as well. There's a lot happening. Hope has got a lot of things in progress at the moment. The Senate is ongoing, but we'll discuss all that in two weeks' time. Looking forward to hearing that, Shane. Thank you very much indeed. This morning, I've taken a piece by Vincent Travers from his book, The Road Home. This piece is entitled Hard of Hearing. Spiritual writers identify noise as a particularly modern obstacle to living a spiritual life. Our lives are cluttered with all kinds of activities. We're going non-stop. We hardly draw a breath from the time we rise in the morning until we retire at the end of the day. God does not fit into our schedule. He's not part of our agenda. Quite honestly, this is disastrous for religion. It kills its stone dead. It makes our lives shallow and superficial. We can only meet God and develop our relationship with him in an atmosphere of peace and quiet. Not making time for God in our daily lives is the simple reason why many of us have lost our hold on God and religion. It's not that we don't believe in him anymore. Rather, it's because we're too busy to find time for him. God is drowned out. 
The words of Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, are true today than when he first wrote them. All men's miseries derive from not being able to sit quietly in a room alone. Jesus said, when you pray, go into your inner room and close the door. His advice to his apostles, pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who knows what is secret will hear you. Our inner room is within our very soul. God dwells in us. Be still and know that I, God, am with you. Our busy world too often makes us deaf to the voice of God. Life becomes absurd. We need to take time out each day. Withdraw to a lonely place where we can give God the whole of our attention and create the sacred space that allows us to listen with attention to his voice. So maybe to help us to do that, we'll listen to a piece of music by Melinda Dimitriscu. And this one is entitled, Bless the Lord My Soul. So back and join us in part two. As Shane said, where we're going to listen to Father Martin Brown from Glenstall Abbey, reflect with us and share with Shane and myself on the week of Christian unity. Come back and join us then.
So welcome back to part two of this week's uh, Commency Inspirations podcast. My name is Shane Ambrose. Delighted to have you rejoining us for this part of the podcast. As always, John is keeping the ship afloat uh, in the background, John Keely. And we're delighted to welcome to the program this morning, Martin Brown from Dinstall Abbey. Good morning, Martin. How are things? I'm not too bad at all. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, John. Nice to be with you again. And how is life in the cocoon of Glenstall these days? Well, uh, I've never seen it as a cocoon because um, it's it, it, it's it's never kind of quiet and uh, and kind of we don't sort of float around on a, a cloud of incense all the time, uh, <laughs> wondering which angel we bump into next. It, it, life tends to be busy, but at least it, it, at least it's regular, which is the one of the great benefits and uh, of the structure of monastic life. When you're, slightly, when you're a slightly chaotic person like me, uh, a structured life uh, uh, is very helpful indeed. Indeed, very good. Well, Martin, we're delighted to have you back on the podcast this week because we are tapping into your vast experience and knowledge in the area of ecumenism. Now, the reason I'm landing you... I'm not, not sure I'd use the word vast for either my experience or my knowledge, but anyway, we'll, I'm, happy, I'm happy to be here nonetheless. Very good. Right. Now, the reason, of course, we have you on specifically this week is, of course, we are in the middle of the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity, which runs from the 18th to the 25th of January. Now, I only discovered during the week there is a specific reason that it runs between those two dates. Uh, The 25th of January, as people will probably remember, is the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. Yes, as opposed to anything else. The one. Yes, but I had forgotten in the old calendar, the 18th of January used to be the feast of the chair of St. Peter. Now, we don't celebrate it in the Catholic Church anymore, but I understand our friends in the Anglican tradition still celebrate it as the confession of St. Peter. Uh, So there were two bookends in terms of ecumenism, confession of Peter and the writings of Paul. Now, that may no longer apply as such, but I thought it was a nice way to kind of uh, introduce the week. Well, well, that was the basis on which the, this particular week was chosen, certainly. Um, mm-hmm. The whole saga around when the chair of St. Peter is celebrated um, is complicated. Uh, of course, he was not only Bishop of Rome, he was Bishop of Antioch. So uh, at one point, he had two, he had two feasts uh, of his chair, uh, one for Rome, one for Antioch. Um, so we cel- we now celebrate uh, in February. Uh, but, but yes, the the... Uh, there was a feast on the 18th of January, and so uh, the, these two great apostles and uh, fathers of uh, the faith, uh, the, the 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 octave between their two feasts uh, was was initially started. Uh, initially started as as the chair of unity octave. Uh, it was very much a, about about praying uh, that those who had separated from Rome would uh, come home and rejoin. Uh, so the focus has changed over the years. Um, outside of the Roman Catholic Church and uh, uh, the, the Faith and Order movement, which b- led to what became known as the World, World Council of Churches, uh, also began observing the, the octave of prayer. Um, interestingly, uh, a, a very important figure in the history of the movement uh, was a French priest called uh, the Abbe Paul Couturier, and he said. Uh, that the walls of separation do not rise to heaven. Uh, and he began uh, the idea of praying for more inclusively, to put it that way, during, during the week of prayer. Uh, so uh, he started advocating for the universal week of prayer for Christian unity uh, in, according to 
praying for what Christ wills uh, according to the means he wills. So kind of not prescribing too much to the Lord what, uh, how he'll bring this about, but trusting that he will. Uh, and he, uh, th- th- So that was, that was 1935. But in fact, the week of prayer had been observed in some, in some format since 1908. So it's been, we've been at it a long time. And it took until the 1960s before we did it together. Right. Okay. Very good. I was just thinking. I suppose it, the focus. I suppose in, in some respects, the focus from a Catholic from the, the Catholic Church's point of view has shifted over the decades. Uh, you know, previously, I suppose before the Council, Second Vatican Council, it was a case of come home to Rome. Uh, whereas now it's a bit more nuanced in terms of recognizing well, there's pros and cons to each side of the discussion. Uh, quite. quite. Um, um, actually, just before uh, this conversation, uh, I was attending the, uh, well, online attending, uh, the launch of a book about the history of uh, the desire for Christian unity. Uh, and there's actually, a, in one of the early chapters, where they, the, the editors speak about Rome's conversion to the idea uh, of Christian unity. Uh, so Protestant churches had, had begun engaging ecumenically um, earlier, um, there's sort of a, a tradition of associating it with a missionary congress in 1910, but you, could, you can pick any number of times for, for the beginning of the movement, but 1910 often is uh, seen as that, uh, which was a, a big uh, international missionary evangelistic conference in Edinburgh. Uh, and the thought was that, so, so Protestants were exploring unity because, because they thought uh, correctly uh, that their witness, their capacity to uh, to be missionaries, to, to preach the gospel was best done together, was, more, was most credible together. Uh, Rome was not interested. Uh, there was a papal encyclical in the 20s. Uh, I forget the name, which pope wrote it, but I remember the name of the do- document, Mortalia Manus, which basically for, forbade Catholics to even uh, take part uh, in, in ecumenical uh, activities. So it really was quite a conversion. Um, solidified during the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, uh, but led up to by, by various other people along the way. And the Vatican Council's document on Christian unity says very specifically, uh, recognizes uh, the elements uh, of the church that are to be, the elements of the true church that are to be found in other churches. So that very binary uh, outside Rome, there is no salvation. Um, doctrine was was uh, well basically abandoned uh, and the whole concept uh, enshrined in many of the documents of Vatican II of the church as a as a communion as a as a pilgrim people um, and various people relating to that uh, pilgrim people in different ways uh, came to the fore and so uh, Rome's attitude and the Catholic Church's attitude to Christian unity uh, very much uh, changed uh, at that at that point and, and it it was a development, but it was certainly a change. It was it was quite yeah. a change. I suppose, Martin, for many people, I suppose to be fair, the week of prayer for Christianity might slightly go over our heads. We might hear about yeah. it being prayed for at masses and prayers of the faithful. Um, it's not something which is hugely active, I would say, in a lot of Irish parishes. And I think a lot of people kind of would be listening today and be kind of going, Well, kind of are we not all doing the same thing like? You know, what's the difference between us all? You know, yeah, why are there, there There's a number of things there, and, and I, I think that they're all true. Um, I don't think it keeps many people awake at night um, worrying about Christian unity and 
or getting excited about the week of prayer for Christianity. It keeps some people uh, excited, people like me. Um, it doesn't keep uh, the majority of uh, Christians of, of any denomination, uh, I think, very preoccupied. But that's the reason why we have such a week. Uh, any kind of uh, observance that we, that we that we have during the year and various days of prayer for this and days uh, like Mission Sunday or Temperance Sunday or Prisoner Sunday, uh, any of those sort of outside the liturgical calendar, any of those sort of special days um, or special periods like like the week of prayer are there because they are important, but we can forget about them. Uh, and so I think. Uh, that's one of the reasons that we do have a week of prayer because uh, it mightn't be everybody's passionate obsession, but it is kind of important. Um, and the, the fact, as you say, that um, people could be saying, sure, sure, aren't we all the same anyway? Uh, well, I suppose there's two things there. One, um, it can seem like that. Uh, and that can be both good and bad. It's good that uh, our actual unity and the convergence that has taken place over the, over the decades uh, is recognizable. Um, but there are differences, uh, and it's important to, to note those too. But also, it's important, and that's what makes going back to the uh, 1910 uh, Protestant uh, Missionary Con Conference in, in Edinburgh. Um, if we are to have any credibility uh, in a society that largely finds uh, churches in general quite irrelevant a lot of the time now. Um, then not being able to agree uh, on on things, not being able to do things together, uh, looking like we're looking like we're squabbling over silly things, um, makes the gospel generally less credible to a lot of people. And so there is uh, a missionary uh, kind of a evangelistic impulse and uh, imperative, I would say, and a necessity uh, to, to take the idea of unity seriously. Now, in terms of this year, um, the, the these weeks they sometimes have a particular the particular theme that's given to them, and there are resources, which is generally prayers and reflections, which are prepared by different communities each year. Now, yeah. I, from memory, you were involved once or twice in preparing the resources. But um, well, 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 I'm kind of involved every year for the last number of years. Um, in in, in to one level, um, the, the, without getting into too complicated a saga about how it works. Um, so I, I said it was the 1960s before Catholics and Protestants began organizing this together. So uh, since then, uh, the materials that are circulated around the world uh, each year for the week of prayer are published jointly by Rome and by the World Council of Churches uh, in Geneva. Um, and a year or two in advance, they ask a particular group to draft the materials. Uh, it's, it's done a year or two in advance because one, it takes time to produce them and then it takes time to translate them into all the different languages and get them circulated around the world. So uh, it sort of happens 18 months in advance. Um, and so they invite a different group around the world. Uh, it may be a, a council of churches in some, in some territory, some country or some group of countries. Uh, last year, actually, it was a religious community. It was the uh, Protestant nuns of Grandchamp in Switzerland. Um, for this year... It was the Middle East Council of Churches. Um, and then they, they draft the materials and then an international team appointed by Rome and Geneva goes and visits them and uh, works with them to try and finalize the materials, uh, maybe to make them a bit more suitable for worldwide consumption because 
uh, sometimes they can be very focused on the on the local area and and things need to be done uh, to, to to just help them speak more clearly uh, in a worldwide context uh, and i'm part of that group um, but unfortunately we, di we didn't get to go to lebanon the, the group was based in lebanon uh, but uh, we didn't get to go to Lebanon because COVID uh, messed everything up. So I'm, I'm sure um, you can say a lot more about the situation in Lebanon than I could ever begin to say. Um, I was just going to say COVID, COVID would have been the least of your problems. Yes, and it was, it was also uh, uh, only a month or so after the disastrous explosion uh, in, in, the, in the port in, in, in Beirut. So it was a pretty dreadful time. And of course, there was a lot of that in the text they were producing, but of course, because it was because it was recent, but of course it's now eighteen months later, so uh, those kind of things can't be can't be as prominent. So it, our international group, which was uh, four or five uh, Roman Catholics and then four or five uh, Protestants and Orthodox, we met online for a week uh, with a group from the Middle East Council of Churches, and I was just looking at the names earlier on today to say where were they all from and what what denominations were they. So we had a Greek Orthodox uh, priest from Lebanon. Uh, we had uh, an evangelical minister from Lebanon. We had a Syriac Orthodox uh, minister, uh, priest from Syria. Uh, we had an evangelical pastor from Egypt. Uh, we had a Maronite Catholic nun from Lebanon and uh, a Melkite Catholic priest from Lebanon. So they they... they led the team that put the put the stuff together and then our, our group uh, spent a week a week talking to them about it and honing it and then it gets sent out around the world and then churches together in Britain and Ireland do, do further edits for the Irish context and so the sort of materials that are available to the churches in Ireland have been further tweaked in Ireland so there's a lot of people involved and by the time it gets a uh, it gets down to the par by the time it gets down to the parish level, there's a lot of people yes. involved in, in, in yeah. preparing those. Although, players. being a bit of a nerd, I sat down um, this week with the text that was finalised uh, after our meetings with the, last year and compared it uh, with what came from churches together in Britain and Ireland. And actually, uh, they, they left it mostly intact. And in fact, most of the things they changed, I would consider improvements. So um, it was a good process. <laughs> <laughs> it sometimes works. It sometimes works. Now, in case people, we'll we'll get onto the theme in a second, but just one clarification: in case people are listening and kind of going, "Is after naming out an awful lot of different names: Syriac, Catholic, Melkite, Maronite." Uh, I suppose we should just clarify: these are different. How would you describe it, Martin? They're different cousins of the family. That yeah, they, um, we're all we're all Christian. Some of those are in communion with the Holy Father in Rome. Uh, but the way that they celebrate their liturgies comes from a particular cultural context and dynamic. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's one of the things about Christian unity is understanding who, who other Christians are. Uh, and Catholics, because, Catholics come in all kinds of varieties. Uh, and Roman Catholics, because most Catholics are Roman Catholics who pray in the Roman rite or the Latin rite, uh, we are very apt to forget that there are about 20 other churches that are fully in communion with Rome that are not Latin Rite, Roman Rite Catholics. For, like the ones I just mentioned there, the, the uh, Melkite Catholics, uh, they, they pray in a very similar way to the Greek Orthodox, but they are fully in communion with Rome. Uh, Maronite Catholics are a very old church based, based in Lebanon, uh, and again, have their own distinctive liturgy. Um, some of the other people I mentioned there were uh, were 
Orthodox. There was a Greek Orthodox, then there was a Syriac Orthodox. The Syriac Orthodox are a, are a very old church. Uh, they, they they became separated from the most of the most of the rest of the church. They're not the same as the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox. Uh, they have some. They had they had uh, some different understandings uh, around the divinity of Christ uh, and the natures of the Trinity and such things way back. Uh, in, the, in the early centuries of the church and division happened then. So Christians have been dividing since, since the very start. Uh, Christians have been dividing if you, re- if you read the New Testament or if, if you read uh, Paul uh, giving out to the, to the Corinthians or Paul giving out to the Galatians or the Acts of the Apostles when Paul is arguing with Peter. Christians have been, have been falling out and arguing over, over things for a very long time. Um, and that doesn't mean, uh, which could make one say, well, sure, what's the point in trying to, to unite? Um, that unity is there because it is given to us by Christ. So, uh, so the week of prayer for Christian unity is about trying to discover that, mm. uh, trying to discover that unity. Uh, and there is a very strong view, which I certainly subscribe to, that we find a lot of that in, in prayer. Like there's an awful lot of stuff was done by theologians and experts and exchanging scholarly articles and position papers and so on. Uh, but sort of where the rubber hits the road is when we sit down or kneel down or stand up, or whatever we do to pray together. Um, and so that, that's why the main attempt at promoting Christianity in the world uh, isn't a series of seminars, it's a week of prayer. Mm. Now, this year, the week of prayer has a particular, as it does every year, it has a particular theme. Yeah. And, it's, and it's, it's very Christian connected or Christmas connected. Yes. Even. So uh, we saw the star in the east and we come to worship him. It's the yes. statement of the Magi from Matthew's yeah. gospel. Yeah, so the so the, the churches in the Middle East uh, chose this as their theme. Um, and yes, it has a, it has a certain, obviously, uh, resonance at this, this time of year. Uh, where it gets a bit complicated is in some parts of the world, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere, um, they celebrate the week of prayer not in January, but in the week before Pentecost. Um, the week between Ascension and Pentecost. Um, so the story they made, I might, st- might not uh, sit as, as naturally for some people then, but, it, but it, it doesn't matter. It's actually quite useful to hear the story of the Magi outside the context of Christmas uh, and to hear it in a different way. Um, and there is something about it that speaks, I think, very much to the uh, journey towards Christian unity, because uh, yes, because it speaks of a journey. Uh, it, it speaks of uh, being led by the light, but not knowing exactly where one is going to land. land. And I think that's very much part uh, of the ecumenical uh, adventure too. Uh, it, it's a journey in faith, but it's a journey in the dark too. Um, and it's about being led to Christ. Um, and the closer that we come to Christ, the closer we come to one another is a, uh, it's almost cliche, but it's the truth. Um, and so people from the whole theme of the Magi and the Epiphany, of course, is that it's all nations. So people from all nations uh, on a journey guided by the light towards the light so that they can worship. Uh, there are all kinds of other things that speak to the Christian condition nowadays too. The, uh, the experience of dealing with uh, crooked or uh, cruel rulers uh, the suffering that we hear about in the story of the slaughter of the innocents, um, the experience of being changed and going back by a different route. Um, 
So all of those things, I think, do actually speak very uh, well and very clearly uh, to the quest for Christian unity. So um, I remember when we, when, we, when we got the first draft materials and I saw, good grief, we're going to be celebrating Christmas again, thinking this is a bit odd. But actually, the more, the, the more you think about it, uh, it actually is uh, very appropriate. Um, and of course, it, it, it speaks very closely too to the, to the situation out of which uh, the Christians in the Middle East are coming. Uh, where there's that uh, fragility uh, to their existence, to their continuation. Uh, they're uh, becoming much more of a minority group. Many of them are forced to travel, uh, uh, to leave, uh, to go into exile like the Holy Family did into Egypt. So th there are a lot of resonances. Very good. Now, Martin, I suppose one of the questions would be for, you know, the ordinary Joe Soap in the street, kind of listened to us talking this morning, asking the question, but what does it have to do with me at this minute in time? Hmm. It has to do with me if I am a baptized Christian. Uh, I am, whether I know it or want it or not, I am in a deep relationship with every other baptized Christian uh, or, any, or every other follower of Jesus. Uh, so it affects me to a certain extent known or unknown. Um, as I say, sometimes things like these kind of weeks of prayer of observances like this are about raising awareness. And somebody asking that question, well, what the dickens has this got to do with me, is actually a very good question, because if you ask the question, then you may actually think about the answer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yes, it is important, uh, because the way Christians are set up in the world now, the way we exist uh, alongside one another uh, is not what God intended. It's not what Jesus prayed for uh, on the night before he died, when he prayed to the Father that they would all be one. Um, so there is, there is something imperfect about the way churches are now. And there's something that hides or somehow veils or masks uh, the vision of what the Lord wants for us. It, it masks what the kingdom of God should look like. Um, so we're, we are on a journey towards the completion of all things by the, by the Lord in the Lord's own time, uh, at, the, at the end of time. Uh, and, the, and the, the more that Christians can uh, recognize their, one, their oneness, their unity, then the more they look like what the fully reconciled creation at the end of time will look like. Mm. It's a, and that's a, that's a big thought uh, and probably one that not, people don't have very often, but, it's, uh, but I think it's an important one. I think it's significant. Yeah. I suppose from an Irish point of view, our experience of ecumenism is very much talking to our reformed neighbors in the different reformed churches, Protestant churches. Does it, is it a different kind of a dynamic when we're talking to, you know, in a wider context for the week of prayer of Christianity, when we're talking and praying with Christians of the Orthodox faith or, uh, you know, other denominations like the Anabaptists or things yeah. like that? Very much so. Um, I think for a long time in Ireland, um, 
well, in many parts of the country, there are very there were very few Christians of other denominations of any of any other denomination. Uh, in most parts of the Republic, uh, in towns, there would be a, maybe a Church of Ireland church. Uh, there may be a Methodist or a Presbyterian church, but probably only in very big towns. Uh, so the the opportunities for uh, encountering, certainly in terms of encountering, in terms of praying together uh, with Christians of other denominations, were, were limited. Um, but certainly, the last twenty years, the the makeup of our country has changed considerably. Um, there are people from every country, uh, every tradition, every faith, and no faith, um, and that brings great diversity and uh, excitement and colour. But it also brings great challenge, um, because there can be a sort of a certain polite niceness about uh, about sort of a certain kind of ecumenism where. We sing carols together at Christmas and we have a service together in January and maybe we do an outdoor something or other, some kind of walk of witness or way of the cross or something at Easter. And it's all very nice and safe. Uh, whereas when you have a whole variety of uh, different uh, Christian traditions in a place, uh, it becomes just a bit, little bit more complicated. And one does have to work at it uh, to be able to do things together. Um, and certainly I find it fascinating when, when we do have these meetings to, to go and finalize the materials. Um, like any group, you can get into a certain kind of group think. Uh, and then somebody who is uh, maybe from a different tradition to everybody else will kind of go, but you can't possibly do that. Or you can't possibly say that. Or if, if, you, if, you, don't, if you don't change the words, the words of that prayer, no Orthodox is going to be able to say it. Uh, and th that's, that's all very lovely, but... Um, a certain kind of Pentecostal evangelicalism isn't like that and, and, and isn't going to be able to do that. Um, so you actually discover that division is real. Uh, it's not just about sort of we have different customs and traditions. We also have, there are, there are questions that are important to people in which we differ. Uh, and certainly as, as our country becomes more diverse, uh, even though number is going to uh, church is declining. Uh, the variety of different uh, expressions of Christianity that's present in the country is increasing, uh, which brings its own challenge in terms of uh, Christian unity and what I was saying earlier about the coherence of Christianity uh, when, when it's so divided. Uh, and that's where the whole question of what's, what's division and what's diversity, uh, what's unity and what's uniformity. Um, and they're all, they're questions you could spend many, many hours uh, teasing out. Uh, mm. But yes, it does get more complicated and more challenging uh, when, when you have greater varieties of religious tradition present. So the, the prayers that you were referring to, Martin, they are available in numerous uh, places. Uh, yeah. the, the Irish Conference of Bishops has a, a page for the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity on their website. So that's uh, catholicbishops.ie. You can also, some of the various dioceses around the country also have links up, including the Archdiocese of Dublin, including our own Diocese of Limerick. Obviously, you can get them on the Pontifical Council for, Prayer, for Christian Unity or the Churches Together, Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. ctpi.org.uk. Say that again now, Martin. C B said well C T B I churches together in Britain and Ireland. Ctbi.org.uk. 
Um, but certainly, what, what's on the Irish Bishops uh, website uh, is what's on the CTBI website. So it's available anywhere. Just on an ecumenical note, we should extend our congratulations to the uh, Church of Ireland community in Limerick and across the Western Seaboard. They have yes. a new bishop. Yes, uh, they have a new bishop and a new diocese. Um, so Limerick in Killaloo was the uh, was the diocese of which uh, over which Bishop Kenneth Kieran presided, and then uh, Bishop Patrick Rook was bishop of Tuam, Killala, and Conry. And uh, it was decided some time ago that whenever either of them retired, the dioceses would be united. And so they very cleverly, a few months ago, decided they would retire at the same time so that the uh, new bishop uh, would be, uh, so the new diocese would have a new bishop. And so that election took place uh, because Church of Ireland uh, elects its bishops, uh, took place at Christchurch Cathedral in Dublin last Friday. And the new bishop is... Uh, uh, most uh, right reverend dr michael burrows uh, he's already a bishop he is the uh, bishop of cashel and ossery um in fact by the time he's finished he's going to have an, he, he will have been bishop of an awful lot of uh, places because limerick and killaloo and tuam and Conry actually if you were to list out all of them that's that uh, it's actually limerick artfert ahado killaloo kilmacdua clonfert emily tuam killala and Conry. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and before that, he was Bishop of Cashel, Ossory, Waterford, Lismore, and Ferns. Um, so, but but yes, he, he his diocese, his new diocese runs from uh, the Dingle Peninsula almost yeah. Paris Sligo, uh, the whole western seaboard, uh, right into the middle of the country. Killaloo Diocese stretches up up into Offaly and to Bor and those kind of places, Bor Ross Grain, and, and so it's a big diocese. Um, he's got to he's got to clock up the manager, but we get we extend to him our congratulations. Indeed, indeed, his, it's, it's on, a very ex, it's a it's a very um, exciting, but I say a slightly nervous time for the Church of Ireland in this in this part of the the world because it's a it's an indication of the fragility of the church that and the and numerically that, uh, that the decision was taken to unite uh, these two groups of dioceses into this rather large territory, uh, so it's a huge territory but not not, not a huge population. And that brings its own challenges. Um, and then two groups becoming one will always have teething problems too. So I think so. But he's an experienced bishop. And uh, I presume this is one of the reasons that he was chosen, uh, that he had the experience to be able to um, get the ground running and help uh, these two uh, groups of parishes become one united diocese. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting time for him. So uh, indeed need for him. So, Martin, to finish up uh, our just and, and thank you for, for just sharing what your thoughts with us on the, the, the week of prayer for Christian unity and the complexities of it. Uh, I was wondering, uh, we'll, we'll go out a piece of music, but before we do that, I was wondering if you have to hand the, uh, the prayer uh, for this year's um, uh, the week of the, inspired by the team for 2022. I do indeed if you might give it to us. Just as, as Martin will give us that prayer, which is taken from the resources for this year for the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. And John, the piece of music that we're finishing up with is... Martin chose a, a beautiful piece of music, actually. It's a Taze piece. It's entitled, There is One Lord, One Faith, and One Baptism. Very good. So, and that's uh, obviously a, a key text for the ecumenical movement. It comes from chapter four of the letter to the Ephesians. 
Um, but just to, to conclude then, a, a prayer from the uh, service prepared by the uh, churches in the Middle East. A star led the Magi to Christ. Today, this star points to the presence of Christ, who has been revealed to us and whose light shines on us. As the Magi followed the star to Bethlehem, we gather under this star today, adding our own stars to the sky, uniting our own gifts and prayers for the visible unity of the church. As we journey towards that goal, may our lives give a luminous witness that leads others to know Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. Um, thank you, Mar Martin. Thank you so much for being with us this week. And pleasure. Uh, we'll thank you. We'll talk to you again soon. Please, God.
So welcome back again to the third part of Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley, still joined by Shane Ambrose. Uh, thanks again to Father Martin Brown for joining us from Glenstall Abbey uh, to share with us his reflections and thoughts on the week for Christian unity. Now we come to the part of the programme which is most important to us, uh, the whole, really the whole point of our programme really, uh, is where we read and reflect on the Word of God, the Sunday Gospel. So today, before, before we do that, as usual, we'll ask Shane to pray this prayer with us before reading and reflecting on Scripture. Thanks, Shane. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this word reverently, attentively, and humbly. May we not despise this word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Let our eyes be closed and our minds wander, but may we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Gospel for today is taken from the Gospel of St. Luke. Seeing that many others have undertaken to draw up accounts of the events that have taken place among us, exactly as these were handed down to us by those who from the outset were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, I in my turn have carefully gone over the whole story from the beginning, have decided to write an ordered account for you, Theopolis, so that your excellency may learn how well founded the teaching is that you have received. Jesus, with the power of the Holy Spirit in him, returned to Galilee, and his reputation spread throughout the countryside. He taught in their their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as he usually did. He stood up to read, and they handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord has been given to me, For he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, and to the blind new sight, to set the downtrodden free, to proclaim the Lord's year of favour. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the assistant, and sat down. And all eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to speak. This text's is being fulfilled today, even as you listen. So that's the Gospel for today, for the third Sunday in Ordinary Time, uh, our first, uh, our first visit to St. Luke, Shane. You might offer a reflection? Yes, now, this week's Gospel. Um, what I would say to listeners is, you need to break it into two parts. You have the first part, which is that introduction, of literally taken from the start of Luke's Gospel, and then the second part, which is the reflection on Isaiah. So we'll, we'll split it into two parts. The first part is the reflection, is the start of Luke's gospel. So the selection of scripture, you know, is trying to to link things into the liturgical calendar. So up to last week, we had different gospels from different people. Last week, we had John and the miracle of Cana. So this week, we're starting with Luke's gospel because we're going to journey with Luke through the liturgical year. So we have this formal introduction to the gospel, which is, but John just read out there that, you know, he's gathering the information, he's presenting it to Theophilus and all the rest of it. So that's what that is. The style is very formal. It's very Greek. Luke was written, writing for a Gentile audience, uh, a Greek audience. 
um, and very much setting out the research that he has done to bring together the account that is presented. Um, it's interesting, it's, he's being very clear that his witness is based, his, his, his gospel is based on the testimony of those that saw things. So that's something for us to think about as we journey with Luke throughout the coming uh, couple of months. Now, the second part is that reflection or that piece where Jesus, after being in the desert, uh, returns and driven by the Holy Spirit, goes into the synagogue on Sunday and is called upon to read uh, from the Torah. Uh, well, actually, it's from the, the prophet Isaiah. So this is part of the weekly religious observances of, of Jews that didn't travel up to Jerusalem, to the temple. And it's very much still the weekly uh, Sabbath celebration for the Jewish community down to the present day. And Jesus is asked to read, you know, it, it, uh, to, to be able to hold a service on Jewish Sabbath. There was a certain number of Jewish men that had to be present. And one of them then would read the prayers and read the, read the scripture. So Jesus takes out the, the scroll, scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And... Isaiah is the prophet that we will meet again and again throughout the Synoptic Gospels. He is the prophet very much whose prophecies Jesus has seen as fulfilling and completing the, 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 the relationship and the promises made. And in this particular week's Gospel, we have a very particular one which Jesus is referring to. And this speaks about the Spirit of God has been given to him, for he has anointed me. So if we take it, if we take it line by line, that's an important one because it it's very much focusing on the Holy Spirit and this gospel, uh, is, the gospel of Luke has been described as the gospel of the Holy Spirit. Um, but it was interesting, John, just working through our our, our notes this week from Father Frank in our Lectio Divina group. Father Frank made the point that Jesus was led by the Spirit, and that same Spirit is in each and every one of us. Those of us that are baptized Christians, that's what we believe, that's what we profess, that the Spirit of Christ has, the Spirit has been given to us uh, through baptism and, for, and through confirmation. It's an amazing thought if you think about it. Uh, but it also poses the question for us this week, how are we listening to that Spirit? How are we discerning what that Spirit is saying to us? How are we making time and space so we can discern and listen to what the way that we are being called? Second part of it was, he has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives and to blind new sight and set the downtrodden free, to proclaim the Lord's year of favour. And Jesus was very much taking this prophecy to himself and saying he was now fulfilling what Isaiah had promised. Now, there's two things to be borne in mind when we, we hear that account. One is this referral to the Lord, the year of the Lord's favour, which is or the year of the Lord, which is the Jubilee year which was the time set aside when debts were cancelled, when land was allowed to lie fallow, and where people rested, where they imitated the Lord resting on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, but did it on yearly cycles. And it's very important in the Jewish calendar. We have it still in a liturgical sense within the church. The next one is in 2025. The last big one was in 2020, uh, year 2000, the Great Jubilee. And there was a special Jubilee in the year of mercy in 2015. But... The important thing for us to listen to when we hear this Sunday's gospel is the radical nature of what Jesus was saying. And it is a reminder to us, particularly in Ireland, that Christianity is not supposed to be conformist. It's not necessarily 
to be seen as the status quo for society. Christianity is radical. If you live it, read it, read it as Jesus sets it out, it calls us to radical discipleship. Because what Christ was proposing to do was, you know, what Jesus was proposing to do was fairly radical. You know, liberty to captives, blind, the blind new sight, and set the downtrodden free. In the world that he existed, he lived in at the time, this was radical talk. You know, to give sight to the blind, obviously it's miraculous, but it's also demonstrating the love of God. Because to be infirm, to have an affliction, was to be seen as a punishment from God. Christ was turning this on its head. He was going to turn this on its head to set the downtrodden free. Again, very much linking back into the radical nature of Christianity, which we sometimes forget in our modern world. When Christianity first started spreading throughout the Roman world, when the apostles were going out spreading the message, the message of Christianity was first taken up by the slaves, the poor, and the women of the world because it was so radical and it posited such an alternative to the Roman patriarchy, patriarchal world that existed at the time. And this Sunday's gospel is very much a reminder to us that Christianity is radical. And we need to listen to the prophets that challenge us on that. We need to listen to the Oscar Romeros, the Dorothy Days, those type of people who challenge us, the Martin Luther King, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day last recently enough, those Christian witnesses who answer to that element of the radicalness of Christ and the radicalness of his message and challenge us in our humdrum existences to look at where are those injustices in the world today? Where are the poor? Where are the captives in our community? You know, going back to where do we listen to pray to how the Spirit is asking us to go out and where are we being called to act? You know, and then I suppose the other side of it is it's very much a question for us. How do we respond to injustice? How do we respond to injustice in the world? How, what is our calling? What is our response from our Christian calling to injustice in the world? You know, the gospel message challenges us to our very core. And the gospel is seen, I suppose, it's, you know, it can be seen as a blueprint for all of those who consider themselves to be followers of Christ. You know, just as the scripture was being fulfilled in Jesus's time, the scripture must be fulfilled in our lives today. And that's something for each of us to think about, to reflect on, you know, to have a meaningful life a life lived not just for oneself, but for one's community. Shane, thank you for sharing those, those few thoughts with us. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Um, Father Frank Duke is very good to us. Um, those of us who are in the Lecture Divina Group in Newcastle West, each week he does continue to send out his thoughts on Lecture Divina, and, and we, th- we, we thank Father Frank for that. And as Shane just mentioned there, uh, at the start of his reflection, Father Frank had a, had a beautiful little, um, f- just f- a few sentences on that particular uh, fact of the Holy Spirit. And he said, we should pay good attention to the fact that Jesus has been guided by the Holy Spirit. But perhaps it's a good time for us to reflect on the awesome truth that we have the same Holy Spirit present, uh, present to us at all times. How fantastic, as Shane said, the Holy Spirit present with us at all times. 
But I suppose just uh, just on on the gospel itself, um, when I was reflecting on the Sunday's gospel today, I was aware that today is uh, it's Sunday, the, the the Sunday of the Word of God. I know we'll speak more about that next week. It's celebrated on the third Sunday every year, and of course, the first paragraph of today's gospel speaks about Luke gathering accounts from eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and carefully writing them down and in order to count, so that we we might be able to receive. Uh, well-founded teaching from his gospel. Each Sunday, the centerpiece of our own podcast here on Come and See Inspirations with the guidance of the Holy Spirit is our reading and reflecting on the Sunday Gospels. We believe this is the good news and we also pray that our listeners will also be encouraged to spread that good news. It brings us to the end of our programme. Thanks indeed, Shane, for sharing with me the presentation of the programme today. And uh, in fact, for getting Martin Brown back to us. Uh, great to have Martin back again. And I, I think you might have plans to bring him back later on during the year. In the meantime, we'll go out with a final piece of music. What else could we play? Uh, by, a piece by John Michael Talbot entitled The Spirit of the Lord. So until next week for myself and Shane. Um, where we'll reflect on the Sunday the Word of God couldn't bring to us this week because we just had either that or the the, the, the week of Christian unity. We picked the, Christ, the week of Christian unity. So join us again next week where we'll speak about Sunday the Word of God. In the meantime, have a good week. For myself and Shane, God bless now. Bye. Hey